Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you here on this Thursday afternoon. Uh, certainly the pandemic has exposed a lot of the shortcomings in Canada's healthcare system. I think that's prompted a conversation about why we don't get more bang for our buck, why our system isn't more resilient, why we don't have sufficient capacity to deal with these kinds of problems. You know, what ails the healthcare system? What do we need to do to fix it? And these are important questions. So where do we look to for some answers? Well, according to our next guest, we've had the roadmap for the past couple of decades. This is part of a series that McDonnell-Laurier is doing, uh, marking the 20th anniversary of what became known as the Mazankowski Report, which, as our next guest says, is still a relevant blueprint today for improving our health care system. Uh, Janice McKinnon is a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada, member of the Order of Canada, former finance minister in the province of Saskatchewan, and of course was chair of Alberta's Blue Ribbon Panel into the province's finances, and joins us on the line here this afternoon. Ms. McKinnon, thank you so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Oh, it's a pleasure to be on your program. Well, it's interesting because the the, um, the report we're talking about, the Mazankowski report, pretty much coincided with uh, an important report that involved a prominent uh, member of, of your province, of course, the Romanow report. What was going on at the time that we were sort of taking these big picture looks and investigations into our healthcare system? And well, ironically, <laughs> much the same as what's going on now, but it was just beginning. The costs yeah. of the system were going up dramatically, so provinces were spending bigger and bigger uh, chunks of their budget on health care. Now it's at about 50% for many provinces. And the service was a problem. Wait times were starting. And so there was a feeling that there, there's, um, they needed to have fundamental change in the system because it wasn't working. It was expensive and wait times are long. And by the way, since those reports, both of those have gotten worse. If you look at Canada compared to other OECD countries, we have a system that's expensive and has long wait times, and it's not ranked very highly relative to other comparable countries. So the problem was there. Uh, Mazankowski came out with very good analysis of the problem, but it didn't resonate because Canadians are, well, are not willing to change. So we're still essentially where we were when he wrote his report. Yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, you know, you and Mr. Roman obviously were part of an NDP government in Saskatchewan. Don Mazankowski was a longtime PC member of parliament, did this report for Alberta's PC government. And so it seemed like there was some recognition across the political spectrum, you might even say, uh, that, that our approach wasn't working, that we needed change. And yet it, it didn't happen. Well, I think the reports were very different. I don't think Romano actually, that wasn't his finest hour, because he did he missed the affordability issue. What Mazinkowski said, and Canadians, I think, have never come to grips with this, we are the only country in the developed world that thinks with government revenue alone, 
you can pay for all hospital and all doctor services. And you can't. If you try to do that, you get to where we are now. You ration. We only have a certain number of acute care beds because that's all the provinces can afford. Um, And so if you ration services, uh, then you have long wait times for service. Every other country in the developed world has one of two things, often both. They have a private sector where you can pay for doctor services, hospital services, if you don't want to use the public system. And they have different ways you pay for some of those services, co-payments. We don't have any of that. And so we're trying to finance a system with tax revenue, and it can't be done unless you're prepared to do what we're seeing now is have wait times. And so many of the lockdowns, because we don't have hospital capacity, but it's going to continue because we have the backlog of surgeries and procedures, and we don't have the capacity to deal with them in a timely way. You can't just create doctors and nurses, for example. So it's a fundamentally flawed structure, but Canadians, governments can't do much about it because the federal government feeds the problem. If you look at the last election, what was Prime Minister Trudeau talking about? Well, we can't have private health care. Well, private health care, by that you can include in private health care, private clinics paid for by the government. Well, that can save money and save time. So the federal government doesn't put money in, it puts in less than a quarter of the money, yet they, they set the standards and the provinces are trapped. So if, if the prime minister is saying private health care is bad for you, and they say these things all the time, then the provinces are in a situation in which they're rationing, and they're rationing beds, and we will continue to ration beds and have wait times until Canadians see the problem. The solutions aren't hard, but if, if Canadians don't see the problem, we won't see change. Well, it's interesting, as you point out, I mean, you know, the limitations on, on the provinces, because the Alberta government commissioned this report from Don Mazankowski. They, they seem to warmly embrace it. But looking back, I mean, you know, there were some bold proposals in this report, as you know, but uh, Alberta really didn't follow through, did it? Well, because what we would happen, it happened, the federal government, particularly the federal liberal government, then take on the provinces and say, well, you shouldn't be having this or you shouldn't be having and look at the last election. Who took on the Prime Minister when he said, well, you shouldn't have any form of private health care, not even if it's paid for by the uh, provincial government? Uh, so, yeah, they, they shape, the federal government shapes expectations that can't re- re- be fulfilled. They say, well, you shouldn't have private health care, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that. And then the result is, if you don't have enough money, so your ration services, you have lockdowns because you don't have enough acute care beds and you have wait times and the wait times are going to continue because of the procedures that have been delayed because of the pandemic. But until Canadians come to grips with the fact that there's, there's a real fundamental problem here and until the federal government stops playing politics with healthcare, right? The provinces are in a jam. Yeah. They, I, the, the, Alberta governments have tried to put out their user fees or the different changes, but they backed off because the public says, well, the federal government says we don't need that, so why do we need that? Well, it's interesting. You made an interesting point earlier because there's this perception that private health care is at odds with universal health care. 
But they're very much not at odds. The two are not mutually exclusive, right? I mean, private health care can exist within a universal health care system. It does in every other part of the world. Yes, it yeah. does. Yeah. The, only the Americans and the Swiss really have a total private system. Every other developed country has a mix. They have a public system that's free, but they have a private system that you can pay for if you want. Now, how might that work when it comes to acute care? I mean, it's easy enough to understand how, you know, a private clinic offering surgery can help alleviate wait times or give give people another option. But how do you see this kind of an approach translating into greater hospital capacity, greater acute care capacity? The problem with acute care is it's so expensive. A hospital bed is so expensive. And so when you're trying to pay for all doctor services, all hospital services, Plus the other services that the province has had to provide, you know, mental health, some drug coverage, all of that. Acute care is where you cut because it's the biggest saving. Um, It's very, very expansive. And so provinces have been running on just the bare minimum of acute care beds. And, you know, the data tells you that other European countries have five, ten times more beds per thousand people. That when you get to anything like a crisis... The system can't, can't handle it. And because so many procedures have to be done in hospitals, they can't be done in clinics, uh, you, have, you have these long wait times. And Canadians, I guess, have come to the point that they just accept the wait times. Um, and the other, the other thing that's problematic is you kind of think whether it's fair, everybody's waiting, but they're not. Rich people are taking their money and getting their procedures done elsewhere. Other provinces are out of the country. So it's been 20 years uh, since the Mazankowski report, and, and obviously we've been through this pandemic. I don't know if I, I hopped in my time machine and went back and told Don Mazankowski all about the past two years, whether he would have changed anything in his report. But in your view, does it all still hold? Is it all still relevant today? Yes. Yeah, I think, I think it is. Um, so the, the other thing he said, uh, that it, it didn't work, hasn't worked at all. In fact, we've gone in the opposite direction. He said, you have to limit the number of uh, procedures. What, what, do you, what is covered by Medicare? Because if you're covering something, and the Supreme Court said this too in its decision on Medicare, if you're covering something, you have to provide timely care. So limit the coverage. Well, we've gone the opposite way. We're now talking about putting long-term care and pharmacare under Medicare, so it's free. But it can be free, but you won't be able to get it because you'll be waiting so long, right? And he said that. Uh, he also said something that I think is really important. There are other changes you can make to the healthcare system to make it more efficient, to work better. That's true. But he said all of these um, administrative changes, yeah, they'll save some money, they'll make the system somewhat better, but they won't get at the fundamental problem, which is there's the, the, the funding and the, the structure of the system, the monopoly. Uh, And that's true. And, you know, every time somebody says, well, the system is wrong. Oh, no, if we just change this, it would be a better system. And the list of things that they want to change, you know, get rid of the people in hospitals that should be in long-term care because, you know, create more long-term care spaces. All of that's true, but it's not enough to bridge the gap. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I do wonder if, if the pandemic is going to change some of these perceptions or maybe change the political dynamic around this issue. I mean, we'll see what happens in Alberta. The Alberta government is certainly looking at uh, other options for expanding surgical capacity involving, uh, you know, private clinics. That Does it feel as though maybe we're starting to see the beginnings of some, some real reform? Well, Saskatchewan, about a decade ago, had a, has very successful experiments with private clinics, um, private for-profit clinics, but the services are paid for by the government. You can't pay. They did a very good job of managing it, reduced wait times, and it was 25% cheaper to do the procedures in the clinics and in hospitals. So we've been there before. I, it's, I don't know the answer to that, Rob, because... Will people just continue when the pandemic is over? Will they be prepared to continue across Canada, not just to one mm-hmm. province, to be on these long wait times? Or will they say maybe something's wrong? But no government, no provincial government is going to go and try to create a, a private system, a private per pay system, probably not charge people until Canadians come to grips with the fact that there, there's a structural problem here and this system can't, on the money it's available to it through taxes, can't provide what's needed. In Canada, we don't get the health care we need. We can't get the health care that's affordable. Yeah. Well, your commentary piece that's up at uh, mcdonaldlaurier.ca. So McDonald Laurier reflects on 20 years since the Mazankowski Report. Janice McKinnon, thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon. Really yeah, appreciate it. it's a pleasure to talk to you. Likewise. All the best. Uh, there you go. That is Janice McKinnon, uh, former finance minister in the province of Saskatchewan, was also chair of uh, the Blue Ribbon Panel into Alberta's Finances, is a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada, a member of the Order of Canada as well. So we certainly appreciate uh, her perspective on all of this. I think she raises some important issues and, and maybe issues that we've avoided uh, for 20 years or arguably even longer. Let me be clear first, Russia is already in Ukraine. We're talking about a real threat of a further invasion of Ukraine. So in that sense, like my colleague just mentioned, a threat is a threat. And we, we are very, very much concerned of this, about this further invasion of Ukraine. That is Canada's Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie speaking in Brussels uh, following uh, a stop in Kiev. Uh, meeting today in Brussels with European Union officials and the head of NATO. It says Canada will join allies in imposing severe sanctions on Russia and Russian officials if the country takes further military action against Ukraine. And it feels like further action is likely, maybe even imminent. Ukraine's president uh, addressing his nation today. Uh, Also pushing back a little bit against something the U.S. president said yesterday, that a minor incursion into Ukraine might not be met with a severe response. Ukraine's president insisting there was no such thing as a minor incursion. Uh, The White House backtracking a little bit today. If any assembled Russian units move across the Ukrainian border, that's an invasion. If Putin makes this choice, Russia will pay a heavy price. So joining us to talk a bit more about uh, the crisis itself, the role Canada has to play in either averting a crisis or, or responding to it, uh, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, Professor uh, Oral Braun, who is uh, an international relations professor at the University of Toronto, also a senior member of the Center for Eurasian, Russian, and East European Studies. Professor Braun, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Hello. First of all, wh- why are we at this point? What, what is Putin up to here? 
I suspect that it's a combination of domestic and external factors. Domestically, he has become increasingly dictatorial, and he has been uh, moving very quickly to crush the opposition. He has been able to arrest leaders of the opposition, but he has not been able to arrest the progress of COVID in the country. COVID is getting out of hand. It is killing a huge number of Russians. It is affecting his popularity. The economy is doing poorly as well. Russia is not a modern state. It's a remnant of the Soviet Union. And so there's a good deal of dissatisfaction. And traditionally, he has looked for foreign adventures to divert attention away from the need to engage in fundamental reforms at home. But second, I think internationally, Vladimir Putin, even though he is a ruthless leader, he is not a reckless leader. He looks for soft targets. He uh, evaluates foreign leaders. He did that with Angela Merkel. He did that uh, with President Obama. And he's doing it with uh, President Biden. And it seems that he has found President White, uh, Biden someone whom he neither respects nor fears. And uh, he seems to believe that this is an opportune time for him to make gains because uh, the President of the United States would not be able to respond effectively. Perhaps it's a miscalculation, but he seems to be operating on that belief. Every time he meets with President Biden, uh, whether personally or uh, by telephone, there is an escalation. So at the very least, it's an odd coincidence. So how far is he prepared to go then, do you think? He looks for soft targets, and if he is convinced, and I think uh, President Biden did a lot of damage in that press conference by uh, sort of uh, meandering uh, in his answer and talking about, uh, well, we would oppose an invasion, but if it's a minor incursion, then we might wind up uh, fighting among ourselves, that is, the allies, um, which not only suggests that Russia may have an opening, but that uh, there are important differences among the NATO allies, uh, that it's not that unified front that uh, the Americans and the Europeans, at least, have tried to present. That uh, may be misread by Russia. And the problem is that even if that is not the reality, conflicts often start out of misperception, out of miscalculation, and that is the danger. This is why we don't know how far uh, Putin will go. And also, uh, by repeating that the United States in particular is not willing to exercise the military option, which at one level one can understand because uh, one should try very hard to avoid armed conflict. Once you are engaged in a violent conflict, you don't uh, have a means of controlling it. again, escalate easily out of hand. But the problem is that when you negotiate with someone like Putin, who is willing to use the military option, who has used the military option, who has used the military option in Georgia successfully from the Russian perspective, who has used it in Crimea, and basically he got away with it. You notice there's no discussion about Russia giving back Crimea to Ukraine, where he has used it uh, in the Middle East to prop up the Assad, uh, um, the Assad uh, uh, re- regime. Uh, if you do not at least uh, uh, leave that option open, you are negotiating 
with uh, one arm tied behind your back. And that gives an advantage to Vladimir Putin. What have you made of Canada's response so far? We, we haven't gone as far as other allies in sending defense equipment to Ukraine, but we had our foreign affairs minister make a very public appearance uh, in Kiev. Uh, we've, we've made it clear that we're prepared to, to impose tough sanctions against Russian officials if they go further. Have, have we found a balance here, do you think? I think we have a, a similar problem to what I just talked about in the case of, of United States. Uh, the foreign minister, uh, uh, Mr. Lee, said that we are willing to stand shoulder to shoulder with, with Ukraine. Sure. Uh, and the prime minister, uh, sounding extremely sincere and committed and sympathetic, said that it would be absolutely unacceptable to have Russia invade other parts of Ukraine. This is all uh, uh, very, very positive, and it is helpful because what Russia is trying to do is they want to isolate and to demoralize Ukraine. And by showing that Ukraine has friends, we send a message of reassurance to Ukraine, and we want to convey deterrence to Russia. But the problem is that you need to use more than soft power. You have to use the entire spectrum of power soft power and hard power in combination. And the Ukrainian government has been desperate to get defensive armaments. United States has provided some limited uh, quantities. The British have just sent some uh, anti-tank missiles. There may be some authorization on part of the Americans to allow the Baltic states to transfer some defensive weapons to Ukraine But so far, it does not appear that we have made a commitment to provide defensive armaments to Ukraine. And whereas political help, economic help, and judicial help, we have been helping with reforming the judiciary in Ukraine, are crucial, it is essential that we also should uh, provide Ukraine with defensive armaments. They do need it. What about the question of Ukraine's membership in NATO? I mean, that would obviously be one way of, of really standing shoulder to shoulder with Ukraine, but it's clearly something uh, that Russia is dead set against. Is, would that be a powerful signal or would that be provocation? Well, Russia also is provoked. They're using the language of uh, the Soviet Union, the lexicon, where when uh, Russia engages in aggression, it's an act of uh, uh, self-defense. When they occupy, they liberate. So you can't take at face value this idea that uh, this is about NATO enlargement, because let's not forget that NATO was not enlarged because the organization went uh, out looking for members. In fact, NATO was very reluctant to enlarge. But countries in Eastern Europe were pleading to be allowed in. The defense minister of Poland in the 1990s, Janusz Onyszkiewicz, said uh, to NATO leaders, we are going to bang on your doors until you let us in. So the initiative comes from countries that are on the borders of Russia that feel threatened by Russia, Uh, but they have to be ready. You can't become a member of NATO unless you meet certain criteria. And Ukraine just uh, has not met that criteria. What uh, NATO can do is what they've done rhetorically so far to say is that they're not willing to give Russia a veto on what a sovereign country, a sovereign people can do. Because the demand is really uh, not only brazen, 
but it is also very threatening to the alliance and to international law as a whole. We keep thinking of Ukraine wanting membership, possibly, or Georgia wanting membership, but there are mm-hmm. two other countries that may seek membership because they are increasingly concerned about Russian aggressiveness. Those two countries are Finland and Sweden. Right. They have uh, moved closer to military cooperation with NATO. Uh, about 48% of Swedes in an opinion poll indicated that they favor membership in NATO, which is remarkable in a neutral country. And would Russia uh, have the right to exercise a veto over Sweden and Finland and threaten to go to war again if those countries should join? Because those countries would be qualified to join NATO. So as we wait to see how this is all going to play out, what are you going to be watching for in the days ahead here? We have to monitor the Russian troop deployment, whether there is a de-escalation. We are seeing exactly the opposite so far. They're conducting maneuvers that indicate readiness. So they have a standing start capability, meaning that they can move very quickly, have the element of surprises in the way. So there has to be the escalation uh, of, those, uh, of those forces. Um, we have to look at any possible negotiated settlement and ask what the price is. Uh, would uh, the West collectively agree to some limitation of sovereignty? That would be devastating. Uh, would they basically uh, concede the right of Russia to keep Crimea, which they seem to be doing uh, at the moment? That is an assault not only on Ukraine. It was a brazen attack on international law. What happens in the separatist uh, region of, uh, of Donbass? So uh, those are some of the things we have to look for. We need to look at what the alliance uh, members are doing. Germany is really important in this. Uh, The Germans have played a game that has not been helpful at all. They have uh, increased their dependence on Russian energy, which gives Moscow leverage. They have virtually completed the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which would deliver vast new additional quantities of hydrocarbons, natural gas, from Russia to Germany. Ironic, uh, when we think about it, Germany (laughs) wants to move away from uh, hydrocarbons, and they are uh, closing down nuclear energy, but they are becoming more (laughs) dependent on uh, hydrocarbons from, from Russia. So the Germans need to give up on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, and Germany needs to increase its military spending. Germany is nowhere close to meeting the NATO goal of 2% of GDP. That would send an important signal to Moscow that Germany doesn't just want profits and expect the Americans to to do the protection, but rather that Germany will carry its fair share of the defense burden in Europe. Uh, They are a very wealthy country. They are the largest economy. And uh, so far, uh, they have not uh, lived up to the expectations that they have a responsibility to deter Russia. We'll leave it there for now. Professor Braun, thank you so much for the insight. Really appreciate you making some time for us here today. You're welcome.
All the best, sir. Uh, that is Professor Earl Brown. He's an international relations professor at the University of Toronto, senior member of the Center for Eurasian, Russian, and East European Studies. So his thoughts on uh, the situation we find ourselves in at the moment and uh, where this might all be going from here. Certainly, as we begin 2022, uh, there is indeed some optimism when it comes to uh, the oil and gas industry in this province and in this country. Now, we have seen, obviously, a surge in in commodity prices uh, in recent months, and it certainly seems like something that is going to sustain itself through 2022. In terms of the longer view, I mean, that's obviously more difficult to measure. But I think there's some optimism that uh, between demand and supply, uh, that there's reason for optimism that prices are going to stay strong as we look forward. Uh, but obviously, for oil and gas companies, you know, this this has been a difficult few years. So there is that question about whether companies are in a position to begin investing, uh, whether there's enough optimism uh, to to open up and uh, loosen those purse strings. New report out from the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers says uh, we are going to see increases in oil and gas investments, both in Alberta and nationally in 2022. Not quite at levels we've seen in the past, but things do seem to be moving in the right direction. Joining us on the line here this afternoon uh, is Tim McMillan, President and CEO of the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers. Tim, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome to the program. Good afternoon. So let's talk about why we're expecting a, an increase in, in capital spending this year. I mean, obviously, that, that seems to match with what's happening on the commodity price side of things. But there, there's a lot that goes into, you know, each company making this individual decision. So where, where's the optimism coming from here? You know, the fundamental is global demand, that uh, we have seen global demand bouncing back from the COVID crisis period to almost record levels for both oil and natural gas and expected to continue to rise well into the future. At the same time, global supply has really pulled back in the last few years, making it much tighter, and we're seeing that reflected in the pricing. Yeah, look, certainly when we look at, you know, previous uh, upswings in in the economy, we look at, uh, you know, the period before the price crash in 2015, you know, we were seeing investment levels of 60, 70 billion dollars. So we're, you know, maybe optimistically getting back to about half of that this year. Is that about right? You know, even less than half. This year, we're predicting 33 billion. In 2014, we were at 81 billion. Yeah. In 2014, we were attracting about 10% of global oil and gas investment. We've lost ground globally as well as here in Canada. We're now only attracting about 6%. If we could just get up to the global percentage, we'd be over $50 billion this year. But sadly, those dollars are going to Russia or the Middle East or Central Africa. Well, what kind of spending are we seeing? Because, uh, you know, obviously in the past, part of what's driven that is we've seen large new uh, oil sands projects, for example. But uh, are we talking about investment and expanding existing projects? Is that one of the reasons why the number is not as high? Because we're not seeing major new investments in new projects? So the spending is is really spread across the Western Canadian sedimentary basin. Um, I say that because the offshore in Newfoundland is not growing really at all this year. And I think that that's a warning sign for Canada when you look at what's happening in the Gulf Coast and other places. But when we look at the increase, it is spread across Alberta, Saskatchewan, and B.C. The largest spending 
always has been on the conventional side in the last few years, and it will be again this year. The largest increase this year is in the oil sands. It's going to increase by 33%. Um, and in, for the conventional, it's going to be new wells. It's also going to be doing more reclamations of, of wells that were drilled several years ago. Um, it is probably going to be a growth story for production, and that's good. On the oil sand side, it's brownfield expansions, it's investments uh, in their infrastructure to renew it, it's investments in performance and environmental improvements. It's really across the board. What about investments in technology? How does that factor in? Yeah, absolutely. That's uh, the implementation in of technology. We have seen our oil sands consistently improve their environmental performance over the last several years because they're implementing new technologies and equipment. Same on the conventional side, uh, the ability to pull down our methane emissions substantially. That's, that's technology, that's implementation of new equipment, and we're going to continue to see that broadly. Well, part of Canadian companies being able to meet global demand is having the infrastructure to to transport that product. And again, we see some reason for optimism. We've seen progress on on some major pipeline infrastructure projects. Uh, How does that affect some of these decisions through 2022? You know, I I think very helpful. In 2021, we saw the end of the curtailment program. Uh, We saw the opening of Line 3, which added some substantial capacity. We continue to see Trans Mountain being under construction. On the natural gas side, Coastal Gas Link and the uh, LNG Canada is still under construction. Um, I think there's so much more opportunity, though, as we see coal-fired power plants that were thought to be decommissioned coming back online in Europe, and as we see hundreds of them coal-fired plants being built in China, and we're sitting here in Canada with hundreds of years of resource, uh, we really have an opportunity to build that infrastructure out in a very substantial way. But uh, that that is still challenging under the regulatory system we have. Well, further to that, and you alluded to it earlier as well, that, you know, we, we, we want companies to be in a position to, to invest even more deeply than they are. We want to be attracting additional investment to this country. So what do we need to do to make those things happen? I, I think that if we look at how we've gone from – 10% of global investment down to just six, um, that should be a warning sign for all of us. And some of that is brought on by regulatory challenges, that we have a very difficult regulatory system that got even more difficult with uh, Bill C-69. Um, we've seen many projects that have got close, just get then get canceled, be it Northern Gateway or Energy East. Um, I think that we need to change our mindset. These need to be national imperatives. To build an LNG facility to connect with customers in China is a national project. And we need to start sending those messages out to the world investors to say Canada wants part of this. Well, and is there some additional uncertainty in terms of what the government's policies are going to be going forward and and the push toward net zero and the potential for even more aggressive policy on the environmental side? Yeah, I, I agree that I think there's some confusing messages out there. At a time where global demand is increasing dramatically, Canada is talking about putting a cap on our ability to grow to help meet that demand, which really just means countries with lower environmental and safety standards are are all of a sudden cornering the market. At a time where the buildup of coal is is growing at substantial rates, Canadian gas could make a global impact 
and we're limiting our ability to do that. So I think we need to look at the policy environment in Canada and say, are we making an impact globally in a positive way, the way we should be? Or are we looking very parochially internally and losing sight of the bigger picture? Yeah, some big questions. Uh, some reason for optimism, though, as we uh, head into this new year. Uh, Tim, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Much appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate your time. All the best. Tim McMillan, President and CEO of the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers. CAPP.ca is their website. So things are looking up in terms of investment, certainly some big improvements over the last couple of years. But as Tim said, you know, still less than half the level of investment we were at in 2014. And even if we were to look at kind of what the, the typical global average is, even for right now, we should be higher than that. We're looking somewhere around 32, 30, 33 billion in investment. You know, it, there's no reason why that number shouldn't be more like 40 or 50, as he says. So I, I suppose it's a double-edged sword. I mean, you know, optimism in that things are improving, but some frustration at the same time that we're still not where we could or should be. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.